Did y'all get one now? Well, no, you each need one. Everybody got a handout? Yeah? All right. Okay. Well, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get going here with Genesis chapters 40 and 41. I told y'all last week that we weren't going to finish the whole story tonight, probably. And uh, we aren't. But we're going to finish enough of it that we'll get to the theme anyway. And uh, then next week, Miss Terry will start her study on Daniel. She is the hardest working. What was it the pastor said Sunday night? No, but we're looking forward to that. Uh, that'll be Daniel. So what we'll probably do is uh, in January, we'll kick off our January studies and pastor will do one and Terry will do one and I'll do one. And what we we'll probably will do is, is finish some of the other chapters of this story in January. Because I don't think Terry's going to get you through all of Daniel in three weeks either. <laughs> well, let's have a word of prayer and we'll get as far as we're going to go with these two chapters tonight and... Uh, and we'll be, we'll, we'll be finished with this part of our Joseph story anyway. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story that means so much to me. Uh, Lord, we know it's just, uh, it's here for a reason. You put it here for a reason. I uh, pray, God, that we would learn from Joseph and from his life and from the events of his life. And that we, like him, will look back and be able to see how you intended everything for good. Uh, so give us these eyes and ears to see and hear. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I think I told you all the first week that it is on, isn't it, Scott? I'm, I'm hearing it. Are you not? Shall I talk louder, Chuck? Okay. Um, <clears throat> I think I told you the first week there's more chapters devoted to the story of Joseph than any other story in Genesis. So that should tell us something, right? Uh, y'all remember a commercial? It's been at least 30 years ago, but it ran for several years, and the commercial starts out, and it just shows uh, a piece of, I guess, steel being put out onto uh, like a blacksmith's fire, and you see that they start, you don't see who it is, you just see they start beating on it. And then you hear the voice in the background starts talking about, you know, discipline and pride and these things. And they continue beating on it. And next thing you know, you see it's a shiny piece of metal. And then they start engraving it. And you realize they're making a sword. And then, yeah. And then you get to the end and there's a Marine in his dress blues. And he puts that sword up on his shoulder. Like It gives me chills. Just It gave me chills then. It still kind of gives me chills explaining it now. Uh, remembering it now because the idea of that commercial all those years ago wasn't that it was just the sword that piece of metal that was being refined by fire and hammered to perfection but it was also the young man who was being refined and hammered and chiseled into something greater and stronger right that was just a really cool commercial well that's that's Joseph in these chapters you know, that's Joseph in these chapters uh, being hammered and burned 
But it's all a part of this refining process as God's making him into something better and greater than he was when we first met him back in chapter 37. And so tonight we're going to pick up in chapter 40. Uh, Last week we left him back in prison. He had resisted Potiphar's wife's sexual advances. Can't really put it any other way. He'd resisted. And so she concocts that story to make him out to be the bad guy. She's the victim. He's the villain. She lies. He gets thrown back in jail. And that's where we, that's where we left him last week. So picking up here in, in chapter 40. Uh, let's just read this together. Uh, let's read. Why don't let's just read the whole chapter, okay? Sometime after this, the cup, I, I love that. Sometime after this. Just a, gen, just a vague sense of time, but we'll, we'll get more specific in a minute. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there was no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. The dreams. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. The the branches are three days. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also have I done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket, There were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. 
So we'll break this down in this chapter. I've just put this in your notes. Preparation, prison, prisoners, and more preparation. Uh, as we look at this, the first thing we see are these silent years of preparation. Now, Moses tells us sometime after this. He doesn't tell us how long. Some amount of time passed. He doesn't say exactly how long. But we know from elsewhere in the text that between the time that Joseph spent in service to Potiphar in Potiphar's house and the time that he spent in prison, he was there 11 years at this point. He'd come in as a 17-year-old young man, and now here he is approximately 28 years old. You say, well, how do we get that? Well, you go over back to chapter 41 in verse 46. There's something else we're going to talk about here in a, in a little bit. But uh, in 41, 46, it tell us, tells us that he was 30 years old when he entered the service to the Pharaoh. So he's 30 years old when he entered Pharaoh's service. And the text also tells us uh, in chapter 41 that two years passed between the time he interpreted the dream for the cupbearer and the time he was summoned to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, so 30, uh, you do two years, he's 28. You say, well, he was 17 when he got sold into slavery and came to Potiphar's house. So it's 11 years, over a decade. And now the text doesn't tell us exactly how much of that time was spent in service in Potiphar's house and how much of that time was spent uh, in prison. And it really doesn't matter because in service to Potiphar's house, he was basically a prisoner just the same, even though he had some privileges. Uh, he was still a servant. And so I call these silent years of preparation because at this point in the story, Joseph doesn't know what God's doing. You know, that's just whether it's Joseph or Job or any of these other stories that we read about in the Old Testament. The person doesn't ever have the luxury of knowing what the narrator tells us, right? Esther, others, to see what God's hand is really doing behind the scenes. So Joseph doesn't know. And so it's just this 11 years of silent preparation. And he didn't have a written copy of God's Word. We talked about this last week. He's just remembering the stories that he would have heard over the supper table of God's faithfulness to Abraham and to Isaac and to his father Jacob. And yet, God's using this to mold him into the man he wants him to be. So we remember that when God seems silent, He's doing something behind the scenes even when we can't see it. Uh, yeah. And we keep reading and we find that he had these responsibilities in prison. The text tells us that the king's cupbearer, the chief cupbearer, and the chief baker are, are brought into prison uh, for offense. All it tells us in verse 1 is an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. doesn't tell us what it was. Um, we could speculate, we will in a second, uh, but it doesn't say so. But it does tell us this. Um, they were put in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. And then verse 4, the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended to them. And so this is fitting the pattern that we've seen from the very beginning of Joseph rising to places of responsibility, even 
in the midst of other negative circumstances. God's using him. So he's assigned to attend to these guys uh, to serve them, even if they were, even if his was a, it's a servant, servant role to them, perhaps, because they were officers in the king's court. Joseph's still given the responsibility of, of tending to them. Now, cupbearer, and literally in the Hebrew, was meant pure of hands. This was the guy who tested the wine before it was given to the king to drink. When I was a kid, I was always told he was the butler. And maybe that's because we didn't want to talk about drinking wine. I don't know. But he was the guy who would drink out of the wine before it was given to the king. Now, the dust, okay. But he was the cup bearer, right? He would take a taste. Now, was he taking a taste to see if it was good? Or was he taking a taste to make sure it wasn't poisoned? Probably that, right? So that if, well, it could be both. Uh, and then the baker, literally, royal table scribe. So don't think of just, you know, the guy back there in the kitchen with his, you know, sleeves rolled up, sweating, you know, that, not, that, not that baker. He was the head chef, okay? He's the head chef. He's the, he's the yes, the executive chef, right? He gets the tall hat, the tall white hat. But they don't tell us, that Moses doesn't tell us that what the crime was. It is possible that they were charged with attempting to poison Pharaoh. We don't know that. The reason I say it's possible, because look how this unfolds. <laughs> uh, they have these dreams. They have these dreams. And Egyptians put great emphasis on dreams and on dream interpretations. For Egyptians, to go to sleep was to have contact with another world. Remember, they were polytheists. They had all these hundreds of small g gods. And they understood sleeping was a kind of, it was the thing that put you, I'm, I'm sleeping, uh, put you in contact with other worlds. Now, did it really? No. You know, we know a lot more about the subconscious nowadays and things, but they didn't know any of that. And so they thought dreams were actually experiences, life's experiences, in some other, other realm. And so they, they really put great emphasis on not just the dream, but on the interpretation. In fact, there were professional dream interpreters back in, in ancient Egypt. And they kept records of what were called dream books. And they would keep records of dreams, they would keep records of interpretations, and, and they would keep records of like... Uh, like similar, when similar things would happen, they'd mark, you know, they'd keep records of, hey, this guy dreamed about trees and this guy dreamed about oceans and rivers. And they would have all of this in the dream books so that they could get as precise as possible with their interpretations. And so Jacob's, Jacob, excuse me, Joseph, or as, as precise as possible in their concept, maybe. Yeah. Uh, Joseph sees them. And I call this Joseph's matured response. And I say matured in the, in, the, in the past participle sense like that because it shows he's matured since he had his own dream. All right, 11 years earlier, he's 17 years old. He comes up to his brothers, hey, let me tell you about my dream. He has no concern for them, really. You know, it was sort of a self-centered kind of a thing. And here he comes 
11 years later, and he sees them, and the text tells us here in verse uh, 7, he asks them, why are your faces downcast today? I think it's showing us he's matured a little bit. He's got a, a sensitivity to what the other people were going through. And we didn't see any indication of that back in chapter 37 when we first met him. And he was this very handsome yet probably cocky young teenager. Uh, shows a sensitivity. His, he sees their sad faces. He asks them, hey, why the long face? What's wrong? What's wrong? So they tell him. And uh, we've had dreams. There's no one to interpret them. And so Joseph says to them, don't interpretations belong to God? And here's another sign of maturity. It's a, a, a God reflex, if you will. And by that I mean, you know, you know your, your reflex, you know, like you hit your elbow and your arm just kind of does that, or you hit your knee and you kick out. At least they did in the cartoons when I was growing up. Uh, it, it's a God reflex. And uh, yeah, some of y'all are like, my reflexes don't do that anymore. His still did towards God. It was his first reaction. He didn't say, oh, uh, I have some experience with dreams. I had dreams once. Let me tell you about my dreams. First thing out of his mouth, don't all interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. He's, his first thought uh, was, was to go to God. You can learn a lot about a person by their immediate reaction to some certain stimuli, some certain st stimulus. Pastor Don was in here last week. He's not in here tonight. I kind of hoped he was because there's a little illustration here. You know, you learn a lot about a person by what their initial reaction is or what their reflex is. And so the story is told. You know, whenever I say that, the story is told that it's probably not true, but it makes a good point. So the story is told of a young man who was curious. And so he went with his preacher to go watch his preacher hang sheetrock because he wanted to see what the preacher's reflex and reaction would be when he hit his thumb with the hammer. I don't think that's true. Don's not here, so it's not as funny as it might have been. But, you know, you can learn a lot about a person by, by their initial reaction. Terry and I are each other's initial reaction a lot during the week, aren't we? And she could tell you stories about me that probably aren't flattering about. Sometimes my initial reaction is not the best initial reaction to something. Uh, but Joseph here in this moment shows us that he's matured. And his first thought is, hey, interpretation belongs to God. Tell me your dream. Uh, and then another uh, indication that he's matured is the belief that's involved here. You know, it, it wasn't a question. He just knew it. God's going to give me the answer. or God's going to give me the interpretation of these dreams, so so tell me about, so tell me about them. And I put this little statement in quotes here. When he said that, do not all interpretations belong to God? Uh, it's really an in-your-face polemic against the idolatrous culture of Egypt at that time. He didn't say go find the professional dream interpreter in his dream books. He didn't say go run over here to this wise man or this other wizard or whoever. He said it belongs to God. Tell me about it. It was like confronting the polytheism right there but it also gives us an idea perhaps that he hadn't forgotten his own dreams and that deep down he still believed his own dreams back 11 years earlier had also come from God 
so we see this indication that somehow during this 11-year process of refinement, God matured this young man. And then we keep reading in verses 10 through 22, we see the dreams, how, uh, how they're fulfilled. And uh, I won't take the time to read it all again, but he told the butler, your, your head's going to be lifted up. And he told the baker, your head's going to be lifted up too. Now, in a very real sense, that, that phrase, your head lifted up, it, it signified that his dignity was going to be restored. So that's what he told the cupbearer, the butler. Your dignity is going to be restored when he says your head will be lifted up uh, by Pharaoh. And we read on in the story and we see that that's exactly what happened. He restored him to his, to his place of, of, of prominence there at his side in his court. But he told the baker, your head's going to be lifted up too. And it was. Right? We saw that come to fruition, unfortunately for him. Uh, but again... God doing what he said he was going to do. He gave, he, we believe God let Joseph see that interpretation and he keeps his word. Well, God kept his word, but who didn't? The cupbearer, right? Look at verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him, right? Joseph's forgotten. So I put in your handout here, this is the cup cup in quotes, or the pit, excuse me, the pit in quotes of continued preparation. <laughs> you know, maybe Joseph, Joseph thinking after 11 years, and it, for Joseph it didn't matter whether it was Potiphar's house or prison during that 11 years, because he doesn't say, oh, I had a great role over in Potiphar's house till his wife lied about me and now I'm in prison. What he said to the cupbearer was, look, I was taken from my land, and I was brought here as a slave. So in his mind, that 11 years is all rolled into one, Potiphar's house in prison. It's all the same to him. And uh, he's, maybe he's thinking, here's my chance. All right, I'm going to interpret this guy's dream. He's going to go. Pharaoh's going to restore him to his place of service in his court. He's going to be standing right there next to him because he's got to drink the wine before he gives it to him, right? And so this will be my chance to finally get out of this mess, to finally get out of this pit is what he calls it. It's interesting that he calls it a pit because he knew something about pits. He'd been in one, and for him, prison was a metaphorical pit just the same. Get me up out of here, and he forgot. So two more years. He didn't know it was going to be two more years. We know that now after the fact. Uh, continue more preparation. And again, maybe he didn't consider it. That's us getting to read back into it from our vantage point and on this side of history. But God will do that. He'll bring us right up to the edge and you'll think, all right, here we go. Now I'm going to finally understand what all this was for. I'm going to finally see it. I'm going to finally get this all behind me. And here comes two more years of preparation. What on earth could he be preparing me for? You might wonder sometimes. That's the wrong question. It's not what is he preparing me for. Uh, it, the, the question is, you know, maybe better, how is he going to use this? Uh, delay is a common theme. We find it throughout Scripture. We find it throughout Christian history. Delay is a common theme. Abraham, 
you're going to have this son of promise. Well, God, I'm 80 years old. Well, keep waiting. 70 what? What was he? Go ahead, Chuck. 70 how many? 75, 75 years old, excuse me, because that's so much more likely. Uh, Isaac, he gave him the name Isaac first, you know, laughing boy, laughter, you know, and there's this idea that like, really, 70, I'm 75 years old, you're going to give me a son? Ah, keep waiting. Moses, all right, he was what we think probably about 40 when he went to the burning bush, and then 40 years later, he's 80. He's 40 when he killed the man. He's 40, that's right. He's 40 when he, le- when he leaves. And he's 80 when he comes back. Right? How many of y'all are 80 yet? Anybody in here 80 yet? You know what that means? It means God's still got some work to do on you. Jim, God, a few more years, Jim, before God's going to be ready. Yeah. Yeah. David was a teenager when he got called out, and he was years later before all the Saul stuff had to work its way through, waiting, waiting, waiting. I put in your notes here Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor had served a few years in China, and he wanted to start the Chinese mission. But some things happened in his life. He had to come back to London. He's living in a poor, rundown area of East London for five years. Five years a lot of people forgot all about him. And he said, without those hidden years, he called them, with all their growth and testing, how could the vision and enthusiasm of youth have been matured for the leadership that was to be? That's perspective. It's maturity. God will delay to teach us these kind of things, right? Raymond Edmond, delay never thwarts God's purpose. It only polishes his instrument. So I don't know what delays you might feel like you're in right now. God's still working. God's still working. So then he goes from the pit to the pinnacle. Chapter 41, after two whole years... Moses wants us to know not two half years or two partial years and not a year and a half and not a year and ten months, but two whole years. Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. Now, this would not have been an uncommon scene uh, in ancient Egypt like that. Uh, It wouldn't have been uncommon for cows to go up kind of knee deep or do cows have thighs thigh deep whatever cows have uh in the shallow water of the nile amongst the reeds because it was cooler and they were protected from the flies a little bit more there so it wasn't an wouldn't have been uncommon for the cows to be over in the reed grass kind of wading in the shallow parts of the nile river all right so he sees this and but behold here's where the dream gets kind of weird seven other cows Ugly and thin came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. Then he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain. 
plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And then the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And I might add, or maybe none who were willing to, <laughs> none who dared. Uh, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with his own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving us an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called, jo called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason and the famine that will follow for it will be very severe and the doubling of pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by god and god will shortly bring it about now therefore let pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of egypt let pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land during the seven plentiful years and let him gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of pharaoh for, for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants, and Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, 
There is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Stop right there. From the pit to the pinnacle. (laughs) He's now 30 years old. 13 full years since the events that day in Shechem with his brothers. And God's finally going to show him a glimpse of where this is all heading. Uh, We read here, Pharaoh had these dreams. Pharaoh's dreams would have carried more significance than the cupbearer's dreams or the baker's dreams. Remember, a dream is... For their, for their polytheism, a dream had theological importance. Uh, remember we said it, it puts you in touch with this other realm or this other world. Well, a pharaoh to have a dream was, even, was an even bigger deal, you remember, because pharaohs were considered small g gods, right? They were considered at least partially divine. And it's two dreams again. And if we weren't sure already, Joseph tells Pharaoh down here in our text, the fact that you had this dream twice means it's a done deal. It's going to happen. Like the, 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 Joseph had two dreams. Remember? The, the, the sheaves of, of wheat were bowing down to him, and then he had a second dream where the stars and the sun and the moon uh, bowed down to him. Two. Then the baker and the butler each had one two and now pharaoh has two and the reason that these dreams happen in pairs is to signify that these are things that were going to come to pass now does that mean when you have the same dream twice that that's like a done deal that it's going to come to pass i don't think so like this is scripture this was stuff god was doing uh so that that's not necessarily uh you know but, I mean, I'm not God, so he can bring about whatever he wants in your lives, can't he? So, but anyway, but in, in, in the case of Pharaoh, J- Joseph tells him, the fact that you had it twice means this is a done deal. Um, and so then in verse 9, or, or in verse 8, we, we read that the, he summoned for the wise men and all these. Nobody could interpret it. Or, like we said, maybe they, maybe they were scared to. Uh, but they didn't interpret it for him. And they leave him in this conundrum. And so the cupbearer comes along. And he says, I know a guy, right? I know a guy. You remember when this happened? This is, this is, this is what happened. And now it's interesting, right? He's remembered in this moment by the cupbearer. Had he been forgotten by God? No, right? This whole two-year process, had God forgotten him? No. So he's only forgotten from a human standpoint. Uh, so we read this. This, this turning of events, and we, it culminates with Pharaoh sending and calling for Joseph, and they quickly bring him out of the pit, and they shave him, and they change his clothes, and they bring him before Pharaoh. And in none of this is yet, anyway, is the name of God mentioned. You know, Moses isn't telling us. God did this. God orchestrated this. God moved in this one's heart, you know. 
with later on in Moses with Exodus, it'll say God hardened his heart, right? He doesn't tell us this. This It doesn't use his name, but his hand is obvious, and his timing is perfect. You know, we don't play what-if games, but if we wanted to play a what-if game, what if the butler had remembered him all those years two, two years, two years before? What if he'd remembered? Well, maybe they would have, like, uh, maybe they would have set him loose. Let him go back to Canaan. Let him go back to his family. Then would he have been where God wanted him later when the famine comes? So that's why we don't play what-if games. But it does show God's timing was perfect. Right? Two years earlier wasn't the right moment. Now was the right moment. Now the cupbearer remembers. Right? And so they bring him before Joseph, and he's going to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And I want to point out something here. Uh, Joseph does not seem to be the least bit intimidated by this scene or these surroundings. Right? right? We're going to see that when he, when, he, when he responds to Pharaoh, we'll see how bold he is, as a matter of fact. Chuck Colson, in his book, Kingdoms in Conflict, he describes how when he worked in the Nixon White House, they would use the aura of the White House to, uh, to try to pacify visitors or moderate visitors, like kind of overwhelm them with some awe so that they would maybe... You know, especially the ones he said that were uh, there to fuss about something or to disagree with the president about something. They would, they would use the awe of the surroundings of the White House to try to quiet them a little bit. I have a little bit of experience with this. I was invited one time to go have lunch at the governor's mansion in Louisiana. And uh, I forget what he had done. He had done something earlier that I really didn't like. And I'm like, okay, well, they're going to invite all these pastors to come to lunch at the governor's mansion, and they're going to give us a chance to talk to him. And so I've, I've got a couple questions that I'll kind of keep in my hip pocket in case they give us a chance to ask him any questions. And, and I don't remember one of them had to do something to do with uh, taxing or not taxing oil revenues or something offshore. I don't even remember what it was now. But I was ready to ask my hard-hitting question of Bobby Jindal. Right, and so uh, they bring us in the governor's mansion, and I'm just like, uh, they put us around this big ornate table, and they put, you know, I've never seen so many plates at one setting. Y'all know they had chargers, if y'all know what charger. I mean, they had everything, you know. And all the servants bring us out this stuff, you know. And by the time Bobby Jindal comes to meet us at lunch, we're just so in awe of our surroundings. He talks for a while, and they're like, any of y'all got any questions of Bobby before we each we take a picture of each one of you with him individually? And so we're all just like, uh, good job, man. You know, that's, presidents have been known to make advisory councils for similar reasons, right? Not Joseph. Joseph was not going to be awed by the surroundings and pull back or remain silent of something that was important to say. And so... What he's going to do here is declare God's sovereignty and superiority over the entire situation, over all the polytheistic little g gods. Here he is talking about 
at this point in time, this would have been the God of Canaan or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's going to show how he's really the God over Egypt too and therefore everything. And so what he says is, uh, oh, I heard you can interpret dreams, verse 15, and he answered Pharaoh, and this translation says, it is not in me, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the Hebrew there, it's, it's one word. It's, it's one word where, where this, this it's not in me, it's like, it's just this one expression. And the best way we can kind of interpret it is like, not me, or apart from me. And so what he's basically saying to Pharaoh is, God will give you the, I'm going to have nothing to do with it. This is going to be from God. This isn't going to be Joseph. This is going to be God. Uh, that's kind of bold, right? When you're talking to somebody who the people considered a small g God himself, and you say, hey, it's not my interpretation. This is going to be God's interpretation. Uh-huh. And uh, so as he, as he reads this, uh, I just circled this here in verse 16. It's not me. God will give Pharaoh the interpretation. And I want to make a correction on your handout. Up here where I say Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams and that's a really big deal, that should be 15 to 32. That should be 15 to 32. And then the wise counsel of Joseph should be like uh, 33 to 36. So that's a mistake I made on the handout. So this really goes through verse 32. So we want you to come down here in verses 25, 28, and 32. But check this out. The dreams of Pharaoh are one. And look what he says. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then in verse 28, it's what I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then in verse 32, to the fact that he had had two of these dreams, he says, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now, he's basically saying, God's going to do all this stuff. And in saying it that way, he's, in, he's showing that Pharaoh is a mere mortal. This is bold. That's why I said it's a big deal. Uh, and he uses the word Elohim in Hebrew. Now, remember last week, when he was in Pharaoh's house, and we pointed out how many times it told us the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him. Uh, I think it was eight times just in that one chapter. And it was the covenant name of God, Yahweh, in each of those instances. Because in those instances, Moses was showing us, the reader, using God's covenant name in that way, that God was going to keep his promises to Joseph the same way he had kept them to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the same God, the same Yahweh God, right? So he's using that, that covenant name. Over here, in this encounter with Pharaoh, uh, Joseph's using Elohim, which is, a, is more of a royal name. And one of the ways of thinking, Elohim's also in creation, right? In the beginning, God created, that's Elohim. Uh, this name of God refers, it's that em plural ending uh, gives it a, not meaning it's polytheistic, there's more than one God, but the em plural ending there on Elohim shows it's superlative. That's the word I'm looking for. It's superlative. So 
he's the power of powers, if you will, right? So he's using this name of God with Pharaoh. The, the, yeah, the mostest God, that's right, Chuck, uh, is going to do these things. And so he's, he's making a bold statement about God's sovereignty and his superiority. He's saying, this God of mine, or this God of ours, we Hebrew Canaanites, this small clan that we are, this God that we worship is powerful, and all these hundreds of small g gods that you guys worship are not. That's, that's basically what he's doing here. And it's our God, the God, who's going to make all this happen. And, uh, and, and you know what? Pharaoh, it doesn't even phase him. He's not the least bit, I mean, that's a work of God in and of itself, right? Uh, like, who are you, prison boy, to be telling me, Pharaoh, what God is going to do? Don't you know I'm God? You know, but he doesn't react that way. So you see, the, like, God's doing this. God's causing this. Uh, and so I have this in your handout there. Kings do not make history. They only serve it. You know, God was making history. Pharaoh's just serving it. And then I just, for good measure, I put in there, and the same is true for politicians. And the first quote was by Kent Hughes, and the second quote was by me. And I know I probably beat this horse to death, whether I'm preaching on a Sunday morning or teaching in here. I'm sorry if I beat this horse to death, but I can't not. Like the psalmist says, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And I'm just not going to lie to y'all. I get burdened. Ask my wife and my kids. They get tired of hearing it. I get burdened by Christian believers who just get so consumed by current events and, and, and what it means and what's happening. And Y'all, I'm not saying we don't, don't need to be good citizens of the world. Uh, but, but what's going on in the world and who's good and who's bad and who's this ism and who's that ism, that, is, that should never rob us of the joy that is rightly ours in Christ because we know who writes the history that these other people just kind of live through alongside of us. And so Kent Hughes said in his commentary, kings don't make history, they only serve it. And I'm just reminding us tonight, like I tend to do from time to time, Politicians don't make history either. They just serve it. Our hope is in Christ. Um, and Joseph was saying to Pharaoh, look, God is in control. It's God. And you're not him. All right? So he tells him that, and then he offers him this counsel. Before, before Pharaoh even has a chance to respond, uh, Joseph starts in with this, with this wise counsel. Uh, and he basically says, take 20% of everything. Here's a plan. Take 20% of everything during the seven years of uh, plenty and set them aside. And that way, during the seven years of famine, we'll have stored up 20% every year for seven years. And there will be enough 
doesn't say there'll be plenty, but it says it'll be enough during the seven lean years to, to, get, it, to get you through it. And so that's, that's the, the advice or the wise counsel that he's giving Pharaoh. And I notice, notice what he's done here. Uh, he's basically said, God will do this. God has shown Pharaoh what he's going to do. God has shown Pharaoh what he's going to do. God has shown Pharaoh what he's going to do. He's repeated it multiple times. Down here he says it's fixed by God and he's going to bring it about soon. Uh, so that confidence in God's activity, that confidence in God's sovereignty wasn't an excuse for Joseph to just do nothing. Rather, it was for Joseph, it was a call to action. Look, we know what God's going to do. So let's, let's go do this, right? Uh, sometimes, sometimes some have argued that God's sovereignty might be an excuse. I had an uncle, I have an uncle, who is what's called a primitive Baptist. No, not primitive. No. Ah, I lost my term. I lost the term. But like, he would basically, he basically believed that we don't need to evangelize. Because God knows. Is that primitive? I think it's primitive. We don't need to evangelize because God knows. And he, was, he would be adamant about that. And you know what? His church was really tiny and it only got smaller. You know? And what I would argue, conversely, similar to what we see Joseph doing here, if God is sovereign, and we believe he is, and we already see a picture in Revelations chapter 5, Revelations, Revelation chapters 5 and 7, and seven we already see a picture of the future of people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language bowing down and worshiping the Lamb of God together. Right, we see that and we know it's going to happen. Instead of that being a call for us to do nothing, that's a call for us to like go be about it. Let's go get in on this, right? And that's kind of what's happening here with Joseph. He's like, God's going to do this. So rather than just sit back and take it and whine about it, let's go be about it. Let's go get in on it. Let's go do something. And so that's what he does. And then so finally, we get Jacob's rec Joseph's recognition. I say finally, and I put a little less, because we've been waiting since he's 17 years old for something good to happen, right? Uh, and then we read that in verses 37 through 41. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Now, Pharaoh didn't know God. He was not a follower of God. He was not a believer in, in, in Elohim, Yahweh, God. So he'd heard the name, but when he's talking about the Spirit of God here, I think he's still kind of got his, all his polytheism and everything in his mind. Maybe he doesn't. But my point is, even if he didn't have the right concept of God or the Spirit of God in mind when he asked this question and knows, recognizes this about Joseph, even if he didn't have the right concept, uh, he wasn't wrong. He just didn't realize how right he was. You know? Does that make sense? Yeah. And so he didn't yet know God or who the Spirit of God was. And he, maybe he's using these terms in a different way. But, but we know how right he was, whether he knew he was or not. 
And so he finally gets that recognition. And notice the similarity between what he says here, what the Pharaoh says here, and what we read uh, back in chapter 39 from Potiphar when b- before the scene with Potiphar's wife and all that, when he put him in charge of his own household. Listen to the similarity of the language here. You shall be over my house, and all of my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And so here he is again being brought back up uh, out of the pit. And God's putting him in a place uh, of prominence. And he's going to use him there. And then we keep reading here in verses 42. Man, we are almost out of time. An hour goes by fast. Well, it goes by fast for me. Y'all might be like looking at your watches, but an hour goes by fast for me. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck, and he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called uh, and Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephaneth Paneah, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. He was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt during the seven years of plenty. Uh, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and he put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, and what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So here's life at the top, and I said this is life at the top on God's terms, because there's all kinds of wrong definitions of success, right? You can say, you can refer to life at the top any number of, wrong, any number of ways. So we're going to say Joseph did it on God's terms. He had, he had remained faithful in spite of all of his circumstances for 13 years, right? So now he's at the top, and he's gotten there on God's terms. And the first thing we see is that he's empowered, right? Pharaoh puts all this jewelry on him, puts the robes on him, puts him in the chariot. Does he gives him the, the empowerment to do the thing he's called him to do. Uh, and while he's up there, he remains faithful. He basically does what he said he was going to do. He does all of those things that he said he was going to do. He took the 20% and he put it in the storehouse and he was diligent 
to do what he promised. So he was faithful, and as a result, he was blessed. And this is not just a hashtag that you put on your social media, you know, hashtag blessed. I, you see this a lot. Uh, you know, somebody's on an island vacation somewhere, and they're like, hashtag blessed. And I'm like, well, are you? Or, I mean, there's a lot of ways to get rich, you know, outside of God's blessings, you know. But in this case, these children, they are a sign of God's blessings, right? This isn't just a misuse of the term. He was blessed. And, and so he will bless us when we're faithful, right? He will bless us when we're faithful. And then he will give us success. And we read there uh, in the, towards the end of the chapter that, that he was fruitful and he was successful in what he had been charged to do. Uh, now, is worldly success always a sign of God's blessing? No, not necessarily. But in this case, it was. In many cases, it is when we do it his way. So our application as we finish up this little three-week study, three core beliefs in Joseph that we would do well to emulate. And the first one is this. Joseph had a transcending belief in the greatness of God. He never doubted. He never questioned that God was in control of his circumstances. He never questioned that God was in control of everything, especially the mundane in the day-to-day. The picture that we get of him after these 11 years in prison and, and in servitude is of a person who was even more committed to this God he'd never met than he was before all that other stuff started. He had a transcending belief, or a transcendent belief, maybe it should have said, in the greatness of God. And he had an unwavering belief in the Word of God. And I told y'all last week, he didn't have a written Word of God like we have. He had the stories that he'd, that he'd heard. Because Moses hadn't written it all down yet. Moses wasn't alive yet. Uh, how God called Abraham, and all of, and then how God gave him a son of promise, Isaac, and the stories of his father. And I'm sure Jacob had more than once recounted the story of his dream and the latter. And uh, he only knew those stories. He only knew those promises that Yahweh had made to his ancestors. And when I say ancestors, I'm talking about his granddaddy and his great granddaddy. We're not talking hundreds of years. But he never doubted. He believed that the God who made those promises to his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather were going to, was going to keep that promise for him too. He never questioned it. Which gave him then, the third, is an abiding belief in the presence of God. Whether he was in the pit or the prison or Potiphar's, there's a lot of P words in this story. Or at the pinnacle and all points in between. Another P word. He, he never questioned God's presence with him. You know, we got to read about it in chapter 39. Yahweh was with him. Yahweh was with him. Yahweh remembered him. Yahweh was with him. He just had to believe it. He didn't get to read about it. He had to believe it for himself. And he never questioned the presence of God was with him. And so that is why. As these other chapters unfold, and if we continue our study in January or February or whenever, we'll get there. And if, if we don't get there that way, I'll just bring it up right now. That is why the ch chapter 41 ends with the famine was bad in the whole world and people were coming from everywhere. And what does everywhere include? Everywhere included Canaan. And who came from Canaan? His brothers. And we can read those chapters another time. 
how the brothers were afraid and how they went back and then they came back again. And in chapter 50, as the book of Genesis is about to be coming to a close, Jacob has died. He's giving, he has given his blessings. Now his brothers are afraid. Uh-oh. Now that daddy's dead, now Joseph's going to go back and seek revenge on us for that thing we did all those years ago. And in verse 20 of chapter 50 is when Joseph says to them, which is where we got the title for this study, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the salvation of many people. Folks, that's perspective. That's perspective. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. He was able to look back at, at this point, 18 to 20 years of time had passed. He's able to look back at all of that. Now, I've been known to hold a grudge. No one's ever thrown me in a pit or sold me into slavery. I'm thinking the human flesh might want to hold a grudge about that. But God gave him the ability, because of his belief in God's greatness and trust in God's word, belief in God's presence with him, gave him the ability to say, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Can I give you one caveat, though, before we go? There's another story in the Bible that deals with a lot of bad circumstances, and that's the life of Job. And we're not going to rehash Job because we're already over time by two minutes. Joseph got to look back. Joseph got to look back and see what you meant evil against me, God meant it for good. He got to see in the rearview mirror or in hindsight how God had used it all. Right? Job never got to read chapter 1 of the book of Job. Job never knew the conversation that took place between God and the devil. Job never knew why see Jacob Joseph excuse me Joseph got to look back and understand why we read Job Job never gets to look back and understand why but this is what I want us to understand as we study this we may get our Joseph moments where we get to look back and see what God was doing and see how God orchestrated it and give thanks and know wow look what he did we may get those Joseph moments or we may have Job moments where we never get the benefit of knowing on this side of eternity from a human standpoint why those things happened. But it doesn't change the fact that God means them for good. And all the things that are true about Joseph and his story are true about Job and his story. The only difference is one got to look back and understand it this side of eternity and one did it but it doesn't change God's faithfulness it doesn't change God's promises it doesn't change God's goodness so keep that in mind and remember God means it for good whatever it is he'll use it it will hurt it might burn sometimes it stings a little but he uses it to make us into the people he wants us to be so he can do what he wants to do with us and through us right Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for Joseph. Thank you for his faithfulness to you and his unwavering belief in your promises. Help us to share those, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I ran over four minutes, I apologize. I'll owe y'all four minutes back from February.